I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week... Gia Tolentino on her debut essay collection, Trick Mirror, Reflections on Self-Delusion. Gia Tolentino is a staff writer at The New Yorker. Raised in Texas, she studied at the University of Virginia before serving in Kyrgyzstan in the Peace Corps and receiving her MFA in fiction from the University of Michigan. She was a contributing editor at The Hairpin and the deputy editor at Jezebel, and her work has appeared in the New York Times magazine, Grantland and Pitchfork, and Gia's debut book, Trick Mirror, Reflections on Self-Delusion, we're going to talk about today. Gia, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you for having me on. I want to talk about that subtitle, first of all, Mm. this collection of essays. How how does it reflect the theme of self-delusion? Well, I I want to say, first of all, that I hate subtitles. I think they're super cheesy. And I wouldn't have had one if I apparently didn't need to to show that it wasn't a novel. Like, I think subtitles and epigraphs are cheesy as hell. So um, subtitle is not my choice. I made one of my friends uh, think of it at the bar 15 minutes before, like, it was due. Like, the the cover was, like, going to print. I was just like, ugh. And she is a brilliant writer and a former copywriter. And she was like, what if we do reflections? And I was like, okay, (laughs) I guess that's okay. I think that the book is about situations in culture and in my own life that seem just conducive to self-delusion. And uh, the first essay in it, I mean, like it's the book also comes out of a type of thing that I have been thinking about for a long time, which is that I think that, you know, as, as our world is increasingly structured around the Internet and participation in the Internet is, you know, it's essentially like your selfhood is monetized on the internet even if you don't monetize it yourself, right? Like It's monetized by somebody else. It's monetized by someone else. Like selfhood is the economic engine of the internet, right? And I think in all of these and all of the social networks on the internet are structured in such a way that they make personal identity basically seem like the center of the universe. And I think under those conditions, knowing yourself becomes an impossibility and also a requirement, you know, an, an incentive and like like these these two conflicting things. And I think that contradiction is interesting, especially because it's inescapable because it's built into the internet. So the idea of on the internet, you know, yeah, you have to, you were asked to sort of triangulate yourself constantly and kind of entrench some consistent idea of yourself. And that at the same time, in doing that, it seems almost impossible to get a clear shot of who you actually are. And so the book is about that and eight other situations like that. And I want to talk about that first. 
essay, which is about, I mean, you're, you know, what they call an internet native. Yeah. You sort of, I came of age when the internet did. Exactly. Yeah, so it's, it's ruined me. And there's a point where the internet changes, and it's, you know, generally roughly around the, the introduction of, of social media, which is yeah. the thing that sort of brings in this idea of curating a self-image for yourself. I actually think it's around the monetized social media, right? Mm. Like, I think pre, like, it's the monetization that's the real problem. But yeah. (laughs) There's another insight you have into this, this whole idea of of, of creating that persona, because I don't really want to go into too much detail on this, but you you starred in a a sort of pre-social media reality show in which, I guess, the sort of personality was created for you Mm. by somebody else. Mm -hmm. Well, you know... That's what they thought they were doing. Yeah. I mean, I if you watch the show, they didn't actually create a personality for me. Like, I appear on the show shockingly similar to probably how I appear talking to you right now. They did think that they were casting me as one type, which is this type. Like, they thought I interviewed everyone I was on the show with, and I interviewed the producer. This was a show I filmed in 2004 when I was a senior in high school. And I asked her, I was like, why did you cast me? Because I was never sure exactly what role I played. Also, because I had never seen it, because I didn't want to, you know, I was like... I got to do it, but I don't have to watch it. And then I watched it to write this essay. But she said that they had cast me as this sort of like type A, you know, this type A sort of bossy, like smart girl. And that's not actually my personality. It's something that can like it's maybe an aspect of it in certain contexts, but that's not actually how I am. And on the show, I don't come off the way that she thought I was going to. The relationship of the reality TV thing to the Internet is more I've never felt that I am constructing a different self for the internet and I never felt like I was constructing a different self for reality TV. That's kind of what scares me. Like I've taken really naturally to these mechanisms without seemingly changing myself, although I know they have changed me in some way. Like these structures of, you know, nonstop self-surveillance and self-broadcasting do, they must inevitably change you. But I, when I was on that show, I didn't think it was strange to be monitored all the time and to be sort of thinking about or to just be in this structure where everything was caught on camera. And I think I realized when I watched the whole show last year, I was like, oh, that's why you're so comfortable on the Internet, because you just you take to this horrible situation like a duck to water. I want to talk about how that that idea of creating a self-image for yourself has sort of bled into well, I hesitate to call it real life because the internet obviously is real life nowadays. But in your chapter on optimization of yourself, and obviously this is something that, you know, affects women in the world a lot more. I want to talk about this idea of you can be the best you you can possibly be. Yeah. All the time. So the the optimization essay is another, in terms of how it gives us an idea of the self that is not necessarily organic to how the self actually feels and it's not necessarily true it's like I think that I understood since I was little that uh, you know the first time I picked up a, a magazine for teen girls let's say I think I understood that what it meant to be a woman to the world was to be in a body and be in a personality that should continuously be improved as to be maximally appealing and that idea has shaped me in ways that I can't even see because they're so deep in me. And I don't necessarily, like with all of these things, I don't even 
it's it's a fact and it's not necessarily a judgment, right? Like I don't think I actually I think that having having to understand that I needed to be careful of other people's feelings and understand that I, you know, needed to make them feel comfortable around me. I don't think that's necessarily that part I'm grateful for, but there's a punitive part to it. And specifically when I'm writing about the optimization question, right, it's this idea that that we can just make everything more perfect and more efficient and more beautiful. And I think as you know, we enter or as we are living deep within this stage of capitalism, efficiency has become it's gone from something that could be good to something that is essentially mandatory. And, you know, this idea of self-improvement, it, it was it was before it was super erogatory. It was not it was something that, you know, could be it could be beneficial. And now it's basically compulsory to continue to survive. And it's like this no matter where you are. And like, or you know, it's obviously not like this for every single person in the world. But I do think that this paradigm affects people just all the way up and down the income spectrum. But specifically, yeah, I think that the idea that the, the self should be continually improving and that it can, I think it affects women in a particular way, like located in the body, right? There's this idea that somehow, you know, women should always should forever look like they're 27 until they're 60, you know, just these impossible ideas of, yeah. And then I write about like athleisure mm. as the, like, that was my real entry point. I would just, I would walk, I worked upstairs from a Lululemon flagship store in New York and I was just like walking by it. And I was like, this is the uniform for treating the body like an, like a market asset. Like it's like, it's something that has to improve its performance on the market over time. I've gone through my life oblivious to a lot of this stuff. You talk about a thing, an exercise routine bar. Is it bar or are we yeah. supposed to pronounce it differently? Bar, yeah, there? yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know, which I'd, I'd never heard of. And of course, then I, I read the book and I was in, uh, as I've just mentioned before we started, I was in the US last week and yeah. we were in Harvard Square. And we like, saw within it. five minutes, I saw three different. I know, places. it is. It's sneakily everywhere. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, I, I see people in the clothes that you describe yeah. as, as athleisure all the time, but I'd never really sort of noticed it. And then again, I saw a Lululemon at a mile that we were at. Yeah, and, you know, it's, right. It's really, it's it's almost like the air that women breathe, you know, yeah. and, and it doesn't, it truly, I mean, I think men have, there's this, there's another version for men, right? Like, I think there's the, like the four hour work week, the sort of the, you know, life hacky sort of culture yeah. for men is, is a version of this. Mm -hmm. But for women, it's a really specifically, it's a really specific thing where, um, like I really do feel in this in a bar class, which basically it splits up your body into parts and makes you just improve one over and over over 15 minutes at a time. You really do feel the acidization, the sort of financialization of your body because the clothes are expensive. The glasses are expensive. It's it's like I think there are a lot of optimization industries. Like I think fast casual food chains, like healthy food chains are like this. It's like these are adaptive mechanisms for late capitalism. They're not actually food or clothes, yeah. you know, and it's like you have to make a lot of money to be able to afford to do these things that keep you healthy enough to make as much money as you need to, you know, and it's just this perpetually escalating cycle. And this is, of course, I mean, for, you know, in terms of women's bodies, same as it ever was, really. Yeah. But this, again... Like almost everything that women do now, this is empowering. Right. So the difference, what I find really pernicious is like, right, in, in the 50s, you would be told to look more beautiful and be more appealing and all of this. And it would be like, do it for your husband do it so you can get a husband. And now it's like, do it for you. Do it because, you know, like you're a feminist, you know, like you're a, you're a badass lady. And that um, is something that has always really grinded my gears. <laughs> a theme that emerges throughout all of the essays that I, I just want to talk about 
more generally is just the sort of institutionalized misogyny and obviously mm. racism as well of I want to talk about how that manifests itself particularly there's an essay uh the cult of the difficult woman mm. which is again a sort of women are encouraged to to do this to optimize themselves to achieve to monetize themselves when they do they just get knocked down again in in, in the same old way yeah. Well, I think so. One of the things that I think a structure of male power has loved to do with women is to designate a set of traits that comprise an ideal woman. Right. And for a long time, those traits are extremely predictable. Like The idea that there would be an ideal woman was kind of a, a precondition. And, you know, that ideal woman is like very, very beautiful, very sort of domestic, very, um, you know, like set like would just be kind of put put other people's needs above hers, you know. And I think that that essay, The Cult of the Difficult Woman, is about how I think it, there are a lot of things that the most mainstream version of feminism has just taken male demands and rebranded them. You know, like the, like the idea that women should be super, super, super beautiful. Now it's still true, but it's like a feminist concern that all women are beautiful and that and it's just like what I want is a world where beauty matters less, right? And and the same is true, like, where there was once this ideal of a woman, which is, of course, this self-evidently dangerous thing because, you know, you really I, – I personally have not – I have never had the impulse to really idolize people, to, you know, have a role model because it seems sort of like you don't – I don't need – an externally imposed idea of what's good, like to me, true freedom. And it's like, I'm so conscious of I'm, you know, I'm 30. Like I have been the beneficiary of so much freedom that other people and other women have carved out for me. And one of those freedoms that I have is I don't think there's anyone is served by identifying someone as sort of like an ideal. Like, what are we, why do we need ideal traits for women? You know? And I think that one thing that feminism has also done is now there's kind of a version of the ideal woman that's just like, you know, a woman that is super complicated and like takes a lot of shit. And like, like there's sort of this idea that um, because women who do big things often are the recipient of huge amounts of sexism, that if you are the recipient of huge amount of sexism, it must mean that you're doing something interesting. And it's, it's sort of like there's still an ideal woman, but that ideal woman is now just like very difficult and like a badass, like this whole idea. And yeah, I think that I used to work at a feminist website. And one thing that would bother me a lot is that we would report like we would write about a woman, we'd criticize a successful woman, and we would get the response like, you shouldn't be tearing women down. You know, you should like let, you know, successful women like we should support successful women. And I was like, guys, like real freedom is located in a world where, you know, there we're not constantly designating women as ideal, you know, where it doesn't, you know, like we, we're not always thinking about men in these terms. Like I, I want that level of freedom where we don't have to just monitor the exact worth of a woman all the time. Like I want to not need to care. And indeed, this this is taken to its extreme when you look at, you know, there's these, I don't know, sort of like identical blonde women that they have presenting Fox News or like, you know, Kellyanne Conway or yeah. Sarah Huckabee Sanders that you talk about in the book, women that have, you know, in no uncertain terms become incredibly successful, but obviously have incredibly pernicious politics. Well, right. I mean, I think that and part of what that essay is about is um, the like fe feminism has become this mainstream perspective over the last 10 years. And I'm so grateful for it. And I've benefited from it. But in the process, like I think there's something going on in the world right now that the Internet exacerbates where it's a lot easier to adjudicate inequality through cultural criticism, where it's like so real sexism is composed of structural. Right. It's it's like and it's I've been saying it's so funny talking about this book in the UK where it's like, you know, let's take the US where you have Sheryl Sandberg writing Lean In. You know, you have all of these like women are getting more power in culture. They're dominating cultural industries and we don't have 
universal health care or paid maternity leave or paid parental leave. And it's like that is where that's where we need to that's where sexism matters. It's at the policy level. It's not about whether someone makes a joke about Sarah Huckabee Sanders as eyeshadow, you know, and, and so this idea that we it's really, really important to identify that sexist criticism and identify and sort of deify and protect women against it as like a main political priority results in those things where like the news cycle in the States was swallowed by a week, like for a whole week after Michelle Wolf made a joke about Sarah Sanders as eyeshadow and everyone's like, is it sexist? Like, how dare? Like, you know, can we talk about her face? And it's like, it doesn't matter. You know, like, sure, it's like maybe that joke was sexist. It was definitely a joke about her looks. Meanwhile, they're separating children from their parents. Exactly. Exactly. And it's also like, and it's it just doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter. You know, there there are just more important things, and it's like this is one thing that feminism has become very successful at that I think um, has often been picked up by in bad faith by people like by right wingers in the states, where it's like you know it was the same where Melania Trump wore that jacket on the way to visit the border that said, you know, I don't really care, do you? And everyone's like, we shouldn't criticize a woman about her looks. And it was like, why are we, you know, it's it's such a it's such a distraction. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. Plush care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Listed to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Gia Tolentino. We're talking about her debut collection of essays, Trick Mirror, Reflections on Self-Delusion. And Gia, for the rest of the show, the second half of the show, I'm basically just going to talk about one essay. Or okay. It's, it's, a, it's a 
a bit of a cheat because it's the uh, the seven scans essay. Oh, I think yeah. you could quite easily have made an entire book out of <laughs> yeah. itself. So you talk about the seven conditions or scams that, you know, millennials have basically grown up with going yeah. from, you know, actual real scam artists like the other uh, Fire Festival guy and um Anna Delvey, interestingly, I I, um, I spoke to literally on the last show, um, uh, Rachel Delos Williams, oh, one yeah. of the people that was uh, robbed by Anna. And all the way through the book, it's really difficult to. You have to keep reminding yourself that you're not supposed to be rooted for, for Anna. her. Yeah, yeah, it, <laughs> yeah, her book. She actually, I think she she's mad. She's mad that I mentioned Anna and did and yeah. She she emailed me and she was mad about it, but it's fine. <laughs> And then you go on to talk about, you know, I want to talk about first of all um, the student debt, basically, and and you you talk, you talk about the sort of the financial crisis, and this is obviously a you know a thing, subprime mortgages and yeah. and what have you, that obviously like you know crippled an entire generation of people as well. Yeah. But but often less talked about is the enormous levels of student debt that right. suddenly occurred over the last few years. And I, I, I my wife has student debts, but I I learned from your book I wasn't aware that. Obama had recently made student debt like it's, it's nationalized, now been, like, nationalized it, yeah. which somehow has made it worse. Yeah. How? Well, okay, so this essay is it's about, I mean, around the time that the Fire Festival, you know, thing happened and the Anna, Anna Delvey story, there's just been this really um this essay came out of me feeling this energy whenever a scam story would come into the news there was this really perverse attraction like we started like america has always loved a scammer like america is really built on a foundational like america is built on the idea that you just go into a place and you reinvent yourself and you can you can take whatever you want so the scam is like so deep in in america's dna and that's something that i've always found interesting like any any economic transition like any banking transition in the 19th century would just be a accompanied by just massive waves of scamming. Like I found, I've always found that interesting. But I had been thinking about this weird perverse attraction to scammers, which I in some, in some ways shared. I think that from 2008 to 2016, the recession to the election, there were these seven things that rose to prominence that made scamming sort of a default ethos in the millennial generation. And I do think, right, like, we all know about the crisis. We all like it's it's obviously like, it's so foundational. But I do look so for me, I was a senior in college. And I was like, Oh, so there's no accountability, you know, like, Oh, so this is really, you know, you're so idealistic, like Obama had just been elected. And, um, and you just realized that, oh, like the people who did this are going to get huge bonuses, you know, and, and then there was all just all this footage of people just having to move out of their homes and whatever. And so but yeah, I think that all of these scams are sort of escalating, right? They build on each other as like so the home has always been such a traditional path to stability and upward mobility in America, right? It's like you become a young adult, you put roots down, you you amass equity, whatever. It's it's like your stability. All of these things are getting paired away. One of the things that it's hardest for people to understand is no longer an easy path or not an easy path, but an accepted path to upward mobility is the college education, right? Like it's such a it's it's really hard for people to turn their backs on for and for good reason. Like for me, I got a full ride to college and it changed my life. Like I the educational institutions have like I really I jumped classes because of them. Like they it, they did the thing for me that they're supposed to do for everyone. And I think that because there's still this idea that and it because for some people, education still does function as this incredible life changing thing. It is sort of we've kind of been ignoring the fact that 
you know, for example, I think student debt doubled between 2003 and 2018. The average debt burden went from $18,000 to 37, I think it is. And, you know, and, and it's, it is so parallel to the housing crisis where, you know, so many people ended up underwater for their mortgages. People are underwater because of their college. You know, they, they're on the hook for an education that's worth less than what they're, than what they paid for it. And I think the student debt is really interesting to me because it's, it's a very clear instance where the college's need to compete in the market, it denies students the ability to do the same thing, right? Like as colleges need to compete with each other to continually escalate their facilities and, you know, improve and optimize and all this stuff. They need to charge more in tuition, so they charge more in tuition, and then their students can't compete in the marketplace after they graduate. You talk about social media again. We've 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 covered social media a little bit in in the first half, and obviously the you know the sort of optimization of data, you know, data gathering that's that's made Zuckerberg one of the richest peoples in the world. I want to talk about the ideas of um, the disruptor, disrupting companies. Oh yeah, went went along with the, the rise of social media. So the likes of obviously Amazon, but also like Uber and yeah and airbnb and their you know their interesting working practices for their employees yeah i mean they operate on a model of minimizing liability to a degree that is basically openly inhumane yeah so these industries i think of them they're also optimization industries in some way like they their business model is monet like they monetize the effects of precarity and late capitalism right like amazon has it is, is it's entrenched itself as such a fixture because everyone has to work so much and everything is so expensive. Like, for example, if, you know, housing and health insurance are just soaring, if health insurance in America, right, it's like it's increased like 300 per like it's 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 the costs are wild of all of these basic, you know, like education and health insurance. So, of course, you need to buy things five dollars cheaper, you know, and, and get them delivered quickly. Like it it's sort of. Like Amazon is successful because people are really at the end of a rope, you know, and it's and it's warehouse workers for a long time. Right. They were like completely unprotected. They, you know, like famously, you know, the working conditions there, they can like some of the people warehouse workers are peeing in bottles to avoid getting penalized or fired for taking too long of a toilet break. Like right now, they're currently strapped to these monitoring devices. They're expected to pack like 90 things an hour. You know, it's, it's just this notoriously openly inhumane system that people continue to use and which I did for a long time because it is truly harder, you know, because every it, life is harder. And it's the same with with Uber and Lyft. It's like they have this convenient supply of people who need to monetize every spare hour to continue to make their rent or pay their mortgage or live. And they and it's as if they're acting as if that's a service when, you know, their their drivers, you know, they don't give them health insurance. They, you know, are totally they they skim off there was just a report this week about they their official statistics about how much of the take the driver take they lift and Uber take. Like they've been lying. It's actually 10, 15 percent more. You know, and yeah, so they're all of these and this idea that it's it's disruption, but you know, what it is, it's sort of like breaking the economy apart and then selling you band-aids. Like it's um and these companies are venerated as like the giants of this era. Amazon and, and Uber are, you know, sort of Bond villain level evil companies. Yeah. But I think even more interesting is is how Airbnb have done this. So they transferred yeah. the responsibility from themselves onto 
their users in what seems like a more benign way but it, totally it, and it i do is. think it is more behind i think it is more more benign i use airbnb constantly i'll say yeah, you so know do I, um i and you know and i and i use ride sharing services and i used amazon for a really really long time airbnb I think I, I included it in this chapter because, you know, it, it did share a similar model at the beginning. Like the this way of being that's been venerated is this extremely, you know, Silicon Valley, you know, male way of just like break all the rules and, you know, and and get too big to have to answer for that. And they've all done it very successfully. In Airbnb, they were breaking, you know, their users were breaking local law and they never told them and it didn't matter. And they made the correct bet that at some point they would be too successful for cities to kick them out. Out, and they mostly have been. And Airbnb, it's, you know, and again, like, this is something that I'm willingly, all of these systems, I'm willingly a part, I've made myself a willing part of them. But um, it's, I think so much of the world is structured around today around consolidating advantage to people who already have it. And, and you know, and America is, of course, like structured around the idea that it's the opposite. But in, in effect, as you are more successful, the world works for you more. And with Airbnb, I think just the the housing market, like how it is, even in New York, let's say in New York City, it is allowing people to just drive up house, like people who can afford to buy houses and run sort of illegal hotels and speculate to drive prices up, you know, to push people out of the neighborhoods they grew up in. You know, it's just this continual, all of this is like this continual escalation. <laughs> just one more essay to finish us off then. Uh, I want to talk about the briefly the essay Ecstasy. Mm. Um, which details basically your, your gradual losing of a fundamentalist religion yeah. and, and sort of replacing the transcendence you found in that with social drugs. And you know, while I've, I've I've never had religion myself, yeah. I've taken ecstasy enough time. Yeah, to, it's great. To understand <laughs> where, where you're coming from here. Um, I want to talk, just talk about that comparison briefly. Yeah, so ecstasy is, is a very clear link between virtue and vice. And that's why I find it I, I almost so I've I have a really ecstatic disposition and I'm really grateful for that. It's like I like it is the thing that breaks through all of this thing that my brain is always doing, right? Like all of this analytical thinking. It's like, you know, there's also a huge part of my body and my brain that wants completely unmediated sensory experience and wants sort of the the absolution and unconsciousness of that feeling. And I've always wanted that and I've always been drawn to it and I've always been able to generate that feeling for myself. Certainly religion was a part of it. Drugs are sometimes a part of it, but even just being alive, right? Like it's like I would just feel struck by ecstasy often. And an ecstasy like, I mean, so one of the things Ecstasy is a thing you feel with religion and it's a thing you feel with drugs. And it with like 12th century mystics that were recording their visions of God, they're doing it in the same language as a 14 year old on Reddit's like LSD forum talking about his first trip. Like it's um, it's the same language. Like when we see when we are placed in that ecstatic state, it doesn't matter what causes it. The language is the same. And I have been so fascinated by that. And especially, you know, there's an immense personal resonance. You know, I I. I'm not religious. I once was extremely. It was like the the world that I grew up in in Texas, and and that feeling of kind of feeling sanctified. That that's a feeling that I feel conflicted about the fact that I've recreated it through different things, but also so lucky that I have been able to because it's a good feeling, and I do think it's instructive in some ways. Like I think that um, there is a kind of feeling you're able to access there that is meaningful, and that has it has influenced my way of thinking in like ways that I still don't understand, you know? So I've been talking to Gia Tolentino. We've been talking about her debut collection of essays, Trick Mirror, 
Reflections on Self-Delusion, which is out in the UK from 40 States. Gia, thank you so much for sharing it with us. Thank you for having me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.